Last couple of weeks, we introduced uh, this seventh key personage, the seventh of seventh main character of the tribulation period. Uh, we began being introduced to these in chapter twelve. We're in a parenthesis here. This last one, the false prophet, the beast that comes out of the earth, um, uh, contrasted with the beast that comes out of the sea, Antichrist. The first half of the chapter, we've been looking at that. I've given you a little background. Last week, we spent our time uh, comparing and contrasting true prophets of the Lord versus false prophets of the Lord. The pre-tribulational rapture of the saints is a biblical doctrine. I make no apologies for that. Those that teach otherwise need to study their Bibles better and quit just repeating things they've been told. Um, and we might say, well, it's not much use in us studying these figures of the tribulation. We won't even be here. But when we study these characters, we can better uh, discern their spirit. And their spirit's already here. The spirit of Antichrist is already here. It's already deceiving. The spirit of the false prophet is already here. Jesus said many false Christ and false prophets would come before the false Christ and the false prophet comes. So it, it behooved us to differentiate a little bit between true and false prophecy. What were some characteristics of true prophets? What are some characteristics of false prophets? Um, always follow the money. Pro false prophets are mo motivated by greed and making merchandise out of those that will hear them. So make sure you follow the money when you start listening to people. Um, and then I kind of looked at a confrontation, there's several confrontations in the Scriptures between a true prophet of God and a false prophet claiming to be of God. And we looked at Second Chronicles 18 last week. Uh, Micaiah, God's prophet, uh, was confronted by a false prophet by the name of Zedekiah. Uh, and it was in the court of King Ahab and, and how this demonstrated some of the differences between true and false prophecy. So if you want to go back and listen to that mess, true and false prophecy, you can do it. Today we're going to get a little bit more into miracles. And I want to talk some about how do we discern a true miracle of God versus a false miracle that's meant to deceive. But before we do that, there are several confrontations in the Scriptures between prophets of God and false prophets. And I think it behooves us to look at these as well. Um, in addition to the one I shared last week, so that we can better understand the spirit of this wicked beast that's already deceiving the world. It's already here. Um, our country is in such a place right now, it reminds me of Judah surrounded by armies, uh, the Babylonian armies. Uh, the siege had begun, the city was in peril, and the people were still thinking that everything was going to be okay, and God was just going to take care of the, the Babylonians and they'd be gone and everything would return to peace. Just blind. And that's where we are today. We just think everything's going to be okay and everything's getting better and you know I'm happy because my football team won and all of this and not just blind to the judgment and the warnings of God's people and the signs of that all around. But uh, let's look... Um, uh, before we look at the, the text in Revelation 13, turn to the prophet Amos, chapter 7. There's a confrontation here between Amos, God's prophet. He was a shepherd, a picker of sycamore fruit that God pulled out of the field and told him to go 
into the northern kingdom of Israel and preach against that wicked altar, that wicked golden calf that Jeroboam had erected when the kingdom divided. And he didn't want his people going back to worship at the temple in Jerusalem because he was afraid their allegiance would go back to Rehoboam and he would lose his kingdom. Even, God, even though God told him, if you will obey me and trust me, I will give you a kingdom. That wasn't good enough. So Amos went to, went to Samaria or to Bethel and he preached against this altar and he preached against the wicked king Jeroboam and a false prophet came out and confronted him. Verse 10, Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel, Jeroboam not only set up golden calves, but he ordained his own priesthood, not people from the tribe of Levi. And he made his own festivals. God had ordained the Feast of Tabernacles on the 15th day of the 7th month, and all Jews were to come to Jerusalem to worship. Jeroboam made up his own feast on the 15th day of the 8th month and set up his own priesthood. These weren't even Levites. And Amaziah was one of these priests or prophets. The priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. Amos came preaching, thus saith the Lord, and they twisted it and told the king he was plotting against him and that his words were bad for the land. Sounds familiar if you've done any street preaching and run into so-called Christians who go to church every Sunday and who are good people by their own words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel shall surely be led away captivity out of their own land. That is exactly what he said because that's what God told him to say. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go flee thee away unto the land of Judah and there eat bread and prophesy there. Go back home and prophesy to your own people. We don't, you don't need to be here. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. Go away, preacher. We don't want to hear you down here today. Go somewhere else. Go back to your own town, to your own church and preach. Preach is not for the street courts, for the church service. It's a private matter. Keep it to yourself. It's nothing new under the sun. Then Amos answered and said unto Messiah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. God said, Go, and he went. Pretty simple. Now therefore hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, Prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord has to say to you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, you tell me not to preach and to say what God wanted me to say, so this is what God has to say to you. Thy wife shall be a harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thou, thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of the land. So here we have a prophet of God that was given a simple commandment. Go to the heart of the beast and preach. Go, go right to the altar and preach. He did. He preached against the king and against the kingdom just like God said he would do. Then there was pressure put upon him by a false preacher, a false priest, just like street preachers and faithful evangelists in this country get pressure from so-called pastors and Christian leaders. Told him, you don't need to preach here. We've already got priests here. This is a church. This is a, this is a holy place. We don't need to hear about God. Go somewhere else. 
You know, what you're saying is trouble. It turns people away. It's not effective. And then the priest complained to the king. And then he complained to Amos and threatened him. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's what the false prophets teach. The true prophets of God will say what God wants them to say. And a lot of times it's not pretty. Remember, true prophets preach against things. They don't preach for things. They preach against it. Okay? And when this pressure was put on him, he spoke very bluntly to the face of this priest. Now, we would look at that and say, that's not very nice what he had to say. That's not very nice. That's unchristian. It's not Christ-like. Well, if you would say that's not Christ-like, you haven't read the Gospels, and you haven't followed Jesus' ministry. Um, but this is what God told him to say. And notice at the very end that despite the pressure that was put upon him, he was just a farmer. He had no authority. He had no fame. He had no backing. Despite the pressure... If you look at the very last sentence of chapter 17, he did not change his message one ounce. He repeated it exactly. He stood by his words. So what we learn here is that a true prophet stands by what he preaches. He doesn't back off of it. You know, there's a lot of godly men who have spoken blunt truth, but then when the pressure comes from both within and outside the church, they back off. They back off of it. I mean, this pastor that was going to burn these Qurans a few years ago, now, I thought that was a circus anyway. And he was so bold about what he was going to do, but then when the pressure came, he didn't do it. Well, if this was such a right thing to do, why didn't you do it? Why did you cave in? That shows you that none of that, that all that was a circus. The fact that he didn't follow through with it. Somebody that says something and then backs off of it because of pressure can't be trusted. And there's plenty of those in the Republican Party. Plenty of those in churchianity. But this prophet stood by his words. False prophet. Ah, oh, this is not effective. This is causing problems. Go somewhere else and preach. An interesting confrontation here that sheds light. Turn to Jeremiah 28. And when we think of these things, we think about the contrast in the last days that will be between God's two prophets, Moses and Elijah, and this false prophet. Very same thing. Those two witnesses will preach against the sins of Jerusalem, against that Christ in His kingdom. The false prophet will say, you know, these, you know, come on, we've got peace. This isn't Christ-like, this isn't Christian. Same thing. Jeremiah 28 this is an interesting confrontation here between Jeremiah the prophet and Hananiah the son of Azur. This is in the beginning of the reign of King Zedekiah. So Nebuchadnezzar had already taken captive people of the land. He had already put Jerusalem under tribute. He had taken Jehoiakim, I mean Jehoiachin captive. He had put Zedekiah on the throne. So this was a vassal king that Nebuchadnezzar put there. So we already had abundant evidence that the land was under judgment and that the very things God's prophets had prophesied was coming to pass. But the people were too blind to see it. Just like Americans today. Chapter 28, verse 1, And it came to pass the same year 
In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah king of Judah, in the fourth year, and in the fifth month, that Hananiah the son of Azur the prophet, which was of Gibeon, spake unto me, this is Jeremiah, in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and of all the people, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. And I will bring again to this place Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, saith the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Okay, so we got this false prophet in the temple saying, don't worry, within two years Babylon won't even be a problem anymore and all that's been taken captivity will come back. God will restore it. Peace, peace. God's a God of love. Love. It's all love. It's all love. No different. And here we have the city under tribute. We've already had Daniel and his crew and Ezekiel and his crew taken captive. We've already had the king taken captive. And we got the prophets prophesying for years that this would happen. And signs all around. But the people were too blind to see. They were still preaching peace. They were still preaching love. Love. God is love. God loves us the way we are. Verse 5, Then the prophet Jeremiah said unto the prophet Hananiah, In the presence of the priest, and in the presence of all the people that stood in the house of the Lord. So this prophet had the guts to stand up and interrupt and rebuke this other man. More Christians ought to stand up in their church services and rebuke their pastor when he preaches garbage like what this guy's preaching. Even the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. The Lord do so. May the Lord perform thy words which thou hast prophesied to bring again the vessels of the house, the Lord's house, and all that is carried away captive from Babylon into this place. May it be so. In fact, it would be so. God promised that there would come a time when the people would turn away captive. But not for that generation. But Jeremiah said, okay, I, I hope so. Nevertheless, hear thou now this word that I speak in thine ears and in the ears of all the people. The prophets, pay attention, this is the nature of, of true prophecy. The prophets that have been before me and before thee of old prophesied both against many countries and against great kingdoms of war, of evil and of pestilence. The prophet which prophesies of peace, however... When the word of that prophet shall come to pass, then shall that prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. May these happen. I hope so. But keep in mind that God's prophets in past have always preached against stuff. And he, when, when somebody comes preaching peace, 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 the only way to know whether it's from God is if it actually happens. But prophets preach against things. Not this... Feel good garbage, you're peddling. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and broke it. Jeremiah had been imprisoned. 
And Hananiah spake in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. No point saying anything else. That's what the people want to hear. Judgment all around, but they're totally blind to it. Judgment all around. Just like today, the people of this country are going to vote their judgment upon them. They're going to vote their judgment upon them. What the people of this country want is a beastly demon like Hillary Clinton. They'll vote her in. They'll vote their own judgment, just like Israel spoke its own judgment in the wilderness. Blind. God has warned, He's warned, He's warned. And just like these people, oh, it's all good. It's all good. Jeremiah went his way. Verse 12, Then the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the prophet. After that, Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast broken the yokes of wood, but thou shalt make for them yokes of iron. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron upon the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. And I have given him the beast of the field also. Then said the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord hath not sent thee, but thou makest this people to believe a lie. The one with the flowery words, the one with the feel-good language was making the people believe a lie. What God's prophets said here wasn't what they wanted to hear, but it's what they needed to hear. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will cast thee from off the face of the earth. This year you will die, because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. A false prophet preaches peace, and in doing so encourages further rebellion. God had already said to the people, if you'll submit yourself to Babylon, even tells the king this, and go out to him, I will preserve you. But in the end, the king wouldn't, wouldn't listen. People wouldn't listen. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. Two months later, he died. Just like God said. So here we got God's prophet preaching judgment, destruction, prophesying the death of a man, rebuking a false prophet for teaching the people to rebel and teaching them to believe a lie. And we have a false prophet tickling ears, saying it's all right. God loves us. He's going to take care of us. He doesn't care. He just accepts us how we are. These Babylonians, these wicked Babylonians aren't going to harm us. These, ter- these terrorists aren't going to bother us. This isn't terrorism. The only thing men ever learn from history is that men never learn from history. Turn to Acts chapter 13. We've got a New Testament confrontation here I think is pretty interesting between one of God's preachers and a false prophet. This takes place on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey after they were sent out from Antioch. Um, In fact, it was uh, pretty quick right here at the beginning of their trip before they get to Antioch of Pisidia and have major persecution. Acts 13, verse 6, And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew 
whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them. False prophets always withstand God's preachers. Always. They always withstand the clear preaching of the gospel. Seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. False teachers turn our attention away from the person of Jesus Christ. Preachers by the Holy Spirit turn our attention toward Him. Not American Jesus, not Catholic Jesus, not Mormon Jesus, but Bible Jesus. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and gave him a big hug. And said, God bless you. God loves you. Is that what he did? No. He said, Oh, full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? He called him what he was. If we want to model ourselves after the great missionary of all time, we'll call false teachers and false religions and false politicians exactly what they are, children of the devil. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Paul prophesied judgment upon him. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, did what? He believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. So this judgment resulted in another man's repentance. False prophecy may result in some healing or pseudo-healing, but we can know it for what it is when it doesn't turn men toward repentance. By looking at these different scenarios in the Scriptures, we get a further understanding of how to spot a false prophet from a true prophet. How to spot and discern the spirit of the false prophet. The spirit of the one that shall come. But when he comes, people will be too blind to see, even though this is laid out clearly here. Blind! Just like the American people today. Alright, let's look at Revelation for a few minutes here. Chapter 13. Last, last couple of uh, times I, I basically uh, focused on verse 11 and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. Okay, I'm not going to get into that right now. You can go back and listen about what those things mean. Verse 12, And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. This man is a false prophet. I want to look today at his attributes. We already talked about verse 11. In verse 12, uh, we learn a little bit about his ministry. A little bit about his ministry. In verse 11, we saw that he, uh, we, 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 we were able to see his characteristics based upon the description there. And now we look at his ministry. 
another one of his attributes. He has all the power of the first beast. And we know the first beast has all the power of the dragon. If you go back and look uh, at uh, chap- chapter 12, verse 2. I'm sorry. Um, 13, verse 2. It says that the dragon gave the first beast all his power. And now we see this second beast has all the power of the first beast. So there's a linking there. Turn to John 8.42. Daniel, if you'd read that. And uh, Matthew, if you'd read John 15.26. I want to pause a minute here and look at the relationship between Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. As we consider the relationship between the the first beast and the second beast here. John 8.42 Jesus said unto him, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came forth from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Okay. Jesus Christ proceeded from the Father. He came from the Father. What he spoke was completely 100% in line with God the Father. He proceeded from the Father. John 15, 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit which, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. So both the Son and the Spirit proceed from the Father. And then we learn that the primary role of the Spirit is to draw or drive people to Christ. He testifies of Christ. He shall testify of me, not of himself, of Christ. And so a lot of this garbage that's peddled as the work of the Holy Spirit that doesn't testify of Christ is not the Holy Spirit. When it's all about the Holy Spirit and not about Jesus Christ, then it's not the witness of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit testifies of Christ. And both came from the Father. When we look at these demonic entities here in Revelation, we see in chapter 13, verse 2, that the dragon gave his power, his seat, and all his authority to the Antichrist, the first beast. And then we see here in chapter 13, verse 12, that this false prophet exercises all the power of the first beast. He speaks as a dragon, verse 11. So just as Antichrist proceeds from the dragon, Satan, so does the false prophet. And the false prophet's role is to cause men to worship Antichrist, to testify of Antichrist as unified in purpose as Jesus is with the Holy Spirit, so is this false prophet with Antichrist. Here we have the anti-trinity. The anti-trinity. Satan counterfeits or attempts to counterfeit everything God does. And just as God sent forth His Son, just as the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father, and just as the Holy Spirit gives testimony of Christ, so does The dragon, Satan, send his son, his superman, and sends this false prophet to testify 
and deceive the world into worshiping this Superman. The anti-Trinity. If you turn over to chapter 16 in Revelation verse 13, we see them all grouped together here. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They're grouped together. This is a counterfeit trinity. Therefore, it can look a lot or seem to look a lot like the Lord or the things of God when our ear and our heart is not submitted to the Word of God. There's going to be a lot that leads people to think this is God. God the Son, God the Spirit. This is Messiah. This is a true prophet. Because it's a counterfeit. And they've not searched the Scriptures and they don't want to hear what the Scriptures have to say. This beast is a counterfeit who bears witness to men of a false Christ. A false Christ. And they will follow Him. Jesus said many false Christ and false prophets would arise. And here in the tribulation is the ultimate fulfillment of that. The Holy Spirit is a witness, my friends. He's a witness of Jesus Christ. And when the Holy Spirit does miracles, He does it to confirm the Word of God and bring attention to Jesus Christ. The false prophet's not a witness, he's a propagandist. Uses propaganda to deceive. When mentioning this role of causing people of the earth to worship the first beast. We have an interesting phrase here at the end of 12. The first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Okay, We see this when we look back early in the chapter and the beast himself is described in verse 3. Um, John said he saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed. Okay? There is a national aspect to this and a personal aspect to this, and this is going to be proven here in verse 14. But if you remember, we talked about in Ezekiel 28, the prince of Tyrus, who is a figure of Antichrist, a type of Antichrist. It says that he would die the death of the uncircumcised, which leads credence to the belief that he would be Jewish, dying the death of the uncircumcised. There will be an assassination attempt on Antichrist's life, and his wound will be healed. He will be resurrected. And as a result of this, people will believe he is Messiah. And the false prophet will uh, perpetuate this propaganda. So there's a deadly wound on the beast that is healed. And I believe this deadly wound that is healed is the dividing line in the Antichrist treatment of Israel. This, is when he, this will coincide with when he betrays them. But there's also a personal aspect here. I mean, a national aspect. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But his ministry, his ministry is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. His ministry is much like what the Holy Spirit is for Christ. Everything he does, he does with all the power and authority of the beast, but he does it to cause men to worship him. Verses 13 through 15, we have what are his miracles. His attributes, 11 and 12. 
His miracles in verses 13 through 15. False teachers can perform miracles. They did it in the Pharaoh's court. Now their miracles are pseudo-miracles. In terms of scope and results, they can never match God's. But they perform miracles. It's foolish to think that a miracle or an experience is a judge of truth. It's foolish to think that. Verse 13, And He doeth great wonders, so that He makes the fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And He deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which He had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. False prophets, a miracle worker. Plain and simple. A miracle worker. Many, like many before him, who come claiming to bear truth and work miracles and deceive people and turn them away from Jesus Christ. If you look at the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 28, it says here, um, ten thirty-eight. I'm sorry. Jesus is preaching to the Gentiles at the house of Cornelius. And this is where God gives the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. He says, He's preaching Jesus, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The Holy Ghost did miracles through Jesus Christ to confirm him to be the Son of God. This is what this false prophet does. He's a counterfeit Holy Spirit. Counterfeit. says he does great wonders. In Greek, this is the same word wonder that's used at the first part of chapter 12 when John sees two great wonders in heaven. The dragon and the woman who stands for Israel. So the whole theme here is the dragon's hatred for Israel. Christ has taken the church and so he turned his hatred upon Israel. Satan is a great wonder. If you read the book of Job, the very last thing that God draws Job attention, Job's attention to in his rebuke of Job, who thinks he knows more than he really does, is he uses the example of Satan himself, the Leviathan, a great wonder. Look at Leviathan. You think you know everything? Look at Leviathan. Go to battle with him. Try to pierce his scales. Try to understand him at all. And you'll find you get nowhere. Even Satan, the wonders of Satan, are a testimony to a mighty Creator that we can't understand apart from Him revealing Himself to us. So God used Satan as a great wonder to rebuke Job. That Leviathan there is not a crocodile. It's not some sort of normal sea creature. It is the dragon. It is Satan. And God used that to get Job's attention. He's king over all the children of pride. If you think you know everything, try to even understand Him. You can't even begin to do so. Israel is a wonder. The woman is a great wonder. It's a great sign. Satan's a great sign that humble us and cause us to get our guard up and trust in God. Israel's a great sign. 
that should drive us to the Lord. The preservation of Israel throughout the centuries, from the days of Moses all the way down to the modern state, is a great miracle that should point us to the God of Israel. But it doesn't. Satan, the dragon, a great wonder in heaven. Israel, the woman, a great wonder. The false prophet does wonders. It's the same word here. He does wonders. And he does them to deceive. One of those is he's able to call down fire from heaven, it says. Now just as he is an, a pseudo-spirit, just as he is an anti-Holy Spirit, he mocks the work of the Holy Spirit. Calling down fire from heaven is an imitation or a mockery of what the Holy Spirit did at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In the Old Testament, Elijah called down fire from heaven. Something that the prophet, the false prophets of Baal were not able to do. And the people believed him. This is a mockery of that. We see the two witnesses are able to issue fire from God. The false prophet. Copycat. See, these guys aren't any different than me. I can do the same thing. When we, we have this reference here to a fire coming down from heaven and we look back at chapter 11 of the ministry of God's two anointed street preachers, there's probably going to be some sort of fire test that all the world will see. A repeat of what happened on Mount Carmel with Elijah and the false prophets. This time, the false prophet will be allowed to replicate. Why? Because God will be sending the people of this earth a strong delusion to believe a lie because they didn't receive the truth, they didn't love the truth, and they didn't believe it when they had opportunity to hear it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Nothing new here. Satan is allowed to perform miracles. He has that power. And as we learned in 2 Thessalonians 2, there's a three-part test we need to take to see if we're equipped to discern his miracles. Have we received the love of the truth? Do we take pleasure in unrighteousness? And do we believe the truth? If we don't, then we're setting ourselves up to be deceived. Satan was allowed to call fire down from heaven when Job was tested. His servants ran back to him and said, fire fell down from heaven and destroyed things. Destroyed your property, your servants. Satan is allowed to replicate these things. It's as judgment on wicked men who have already made up their minds they're not going to follow the Lord. Pharaoh had his own priests that were able to duplicate miracles. Paul tells us their names were Jonas and Jambres in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And when you go back and study the judgment of God upon Israel in Exodus 7-9, through these false prophets were able to cast their rods down and turn them into serpents, just like Aaron did. Now Aaron's rod ate up their rods, but notwithstanding, their rods were turned into serpents. These false prophets were able to duplicate turning water into blood. Now, not to the extent that God did with the rivers of Egypt, but still they turned water to blood. 
They were able to duplicate the frogs. Not to the extent... Satan's miracles are never to the extent of God's. They never have the permanent nature, the scope and the results of God's. But there's a duplication there that can deceive people that have already made their mind up going to follow the Lord. It wasn't until the plague of lice that they weren't able to duplicate. And so, these false priests of Pharaoh perform the same miracles. Now, we're going to see in a little bit that God did not divide between the Egyptians and the Israelites until later. The Israelites suffered the first few plagues, just like the Egyptians did. And there's a reason why. Satan does miracles. He's allowed to perform them. He has that power. He uses it to deceive. We know Antichrist will do this. We know the false prophet here will do this, call fire down from heaven. But as I've said, in some ways, Satan's miracles always fall short in terms of scope and results. So I want to look a little bit at God's miracles versus... Satan's miracles in the Bible. We can see examples of these. We can see differences in results. They may look the same, but the results are always different. God's miracle and Satan's miracle may resemble each other in terms of what they look like, but not in terms of their results. The results are always different. And we need to look at the results to see whether it's from God or not. Number one, God's miracles lead people to believe God. Satan's miracles drive men to doubt God. When God does something, it leads men to believe Him. To believe His Word. When Satan does something, it causes men to doubt God. To doubt particularly His Word. Or to rationalize it away. We can look at a couple of examples. In Luke chapter 1, there was a miracle that was performed when Zacharias the priest went in and the angel told him about the birth of John the Baptist. A miracle was done because Zacharias didn't believe. Verse 20, And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not be able to speak, until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. So, a miracle was done. Zacharias, who had no problem speaking, suddenly became dumb. Now, if you go to the end of Luke chapter 1, what was the result of this miracle? Zacharias was still dumb when John was born. And the people would name the baby... Uh, after somebody that's uh, from their kindred. They thought they should name him Zacharias after his father. And so, um, they were trying to get Zacharias to tell him what should we name this baby. He couldn't speak. So he took a piece of paper and he wrote down his name is to be John. That miracle of turning that man dumb led him to believe God. And the proof is, he said name the baby exactly what the angel told him to name him. It caused him to believe God. His name is John, and they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. 
So here we have a miracle that led someone to believe God's Word. And the proof is that before his speech came back, while he was still dumb, he indicated they were to call the baby John. That was not a family name. It went totally against the culture, but it's what God told him to do. And he must have believed God's Word as a result of the miracle. If you go to Judges chapter 13, a miracle is done. The mother of Samson, an angel appears unto her. She goes and tells her husband Manoah, they come and offer up, uh, uh, make a meal for this angel and he accepts it and he, he becomes a flame in the midst of that sacrifice and ascends up in heaven. There's a miracle that's done. And as a result of that, what did Manoah and his wife do? They raised the son as a Nazarite, exactly like God told them to do. As a result of that miracle there involving the angel in Judges 13, they believed God and they did what He said. There's a lot in the book of Judges in terms of miracles. Um, We can look at the story of Gideon as well. Turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Gideon's a poor man. He has no power. He has no authority. But God tells him He's going to use him to deliver the people of Israel from the Midianites. God does a miracle there. Gideon made a meal for him, put it on a rock. The angel touched it with his staff and it consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Gideon knew he was in the presence of of the angel of the Lord. He called the place Jehovah Shalom. It was a miracle. And then what did he go do? He went and threw down the altar of Baal and the grove that his father had. So he believed God would deliver, use him when he saw the miracle because then he went and did something that would have put him at big risk. He tore down an altar. We see he lays a fleece out. God does a miracle later where the fleece is concerned. And as a result, he believed God and went up and pitched against the Midianites. Miracles led Gideon to believe God's Word and act upon it. Look at Mark chapter 16, the Great Commission. Mark chapter 16. Jesus said in verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's our responsibility. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. That's God's problem. Great Commission is about obedience, not results. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So there would be miracles from God. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they, that is the disciple Jesus was speaking to, went forth and preached everywhere the Lord working with them and confirming the Word with signs following. Amen. So in other words, Jesus told His disciples, go and preach the gospel. These miracles will happen. And then it happened. 
It happens, period. This will happen, it happens, period. So I, know, I love how people like to focus on verse 17 and ignore the fact that what God said would happen happened, past tense. And then they want to build, build a weird, weird doctrine off of it and hold snakes and walk around and all of this. But don't even take time to realize that the miracles happened when the apostles preached the gospel, not when they danced around and act like animals. But here we see God using signs and miracles to do what? Confirm the Word. And as a result, souls were added unto the church. And this is exactly what happens in the book of Acts. God's miracles led people to believe His Word. They confirm His Word. Satan's miracles, on the other hand, drive men to doubt God. To doubt His Word. To call His Word into question. We have an example of this in 1 Kings chapter 13. When Jeroboam erected the golden calves at Dan and Bethel, God sent a prophet to Bethel to prophesy against the altar. This prophet was told, get up out of Judah, I want you to go to Bethel. I want you to preach against this altar. Then I want you to turn around and come straight back to Judah. Don't stop in the northern kingdom of Israel. Don't eat. Don't lollygag around. Don't fellowship with anybody. Go and preach and come straight back. That's what God told him to do. So, the prophet goes, he preaches against the altar, and he prophesies that a day would come when a descendant of the house of David, Josiah by name, would destroy that altar. That was a prophecy of somebody by name that wouldn't happen for 350 years. An amazing specific prophecy. Then the king tries to invite him home. You know, there's the withered hand and all of that here. The guy's hand was withered when he reached out to, to apprehend the prophet. And then, then the king all of a sudden became scared and whined like a baby and prayed that the prophet would pray to the Lord and heal him. And that's what God did. Um, and then the, the king invites him to come home with him. And he says, I can't. The Lord told me to get up here. Even if you give me half of your house, I can't go or eat bread with you because God told me to go straight back home. Okay, so he headed back for home like God had said. Well, there was an old prophet in Bethel that heard what had happened and he went out to find this prophet of God because he was like encouraged. Man, this guy came up here and he preached against this altar and he said the things that I'm not willing to say. I want to go out and I want this guy to come back to my house and hang out with me a little bit. You know, maybe some good motives there. But when he went out with some well-meaning advice... He claimed a miracle. When he confronted this prophet, he said, come home with me, let me feed you, let me give you a place to eat. And the guy said, I can't. God said to come and go straight back. I've got to obey Him. Then if you look at chapter 13, verse 18, he, this old prophet from Bethel that came out looking for him, said unto him, I'm a prophet just like you are. I'm a prophet as also thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. So this guy claimed a miracle. But he lied unto him. So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drink water. Here we have claims of a miracle that we know was not from God because it caused this prophet to doubt God's word. God said, Go and come back. There's another lesson you can learn from this story. When, when, when this prophet finally leaves to head back, uh, he's met by a lion. 
And the lion destroys or kills him. And when the old prophet comes out, he sees the lion, lion sitting by the carcass and the, the, the ass or the donkey is not hurt at all. It's a miracle. And then the prophet knew that God meant business and he went and buried this man and made his, made his sons promise that they would bury him beside him. He realized he made a terrible, terrible mistake. God's word was true. So we have two miracles here. One that's claimed that didn't happen that caused someone to doubt God's Word. And then when we have the miracle of the lion and the ass standing by there not hurt by the carcass, then we have the guy that gave bad advice realizing God's Word is true. Sometimes a great lesson to learn from this story is that well-meaning advice from believers can sometimes be the worst advice. This guy had intentions to just help out a traveling preacher because he was encouraged by his message. But his well-meaning advice was bad advice. Well-meaning advice from Christian people can sometimes be very bad. Be careful. That's a side lesson. We know here in Revelation 13, verse 14, that a false prophet of God drives people to doubt God's Word. They turn away from God. They doubt God's Word when it comes to idols and they fashion an idol and worship the beast. What's another thing that God's miracles do? They lead people to not only believe Him. There's a difference between believing in God and believing God. They don't only lead people to believe God, they lead people to glorify God and put faith in His Messiah. Whereas Satan's miracles drive men away from God and toward idols. What's the first thing Zacharias did when he opened his mouth? He glorified God. The miracle caused him to glorify God. Jesus performed some miracles that were from God and the results were that men glorified God. In John chapter 9, you have the blind man that was healed. Jesus' disciples asked, Who sinned, Master, that this man should be born blind? Was it him or his parents? Jesus said, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God may be manifest in him. The miracle was to bring glory to God. Go to chapter 11, verse 4, concerning Lazarus. Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified. That miracle resulted in God being glorified. What did Paul do as soon as he uh, experienced the miracle of having his sight returned unto him? Acts chapter 9, verse 20. When he had received meat, he was strengthened. Uh, or actually, verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes, after Ananias prayed for him, immediately there fell from his eyes that it has been scales, and he received sight, therefore, and arose and was baptized. So, the blindness that he had from encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus was healed, and he was baptized, and he ate, and he stayed in Damascus. And then look at verse 20, and what did he do straightway? Straightway means immediately. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that He is the Son of God. So that miracle led Paul to immediately go out and start preaching Jesus Christ the Messiah. Giving glory to God. If you turn to Acts 19 at Ephesus. At Ephesus. 
tells us that God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. From his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons. This is verse 12. And the diseases departed from them and evil spirits went out from them. Paul was allowed to perform special miracles. And what did this do? Verse 17, And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Those miracles resulted in the name of Jesus, God's Messiah, being magnified. But Satan's miracles drive men away from God. They drive men away from the testimony of Jesus Christ and His supremacy and His authority. And they drive men toward idols. We see this in Revelation 13. These miracles drive men to worship an idol of the beast. In Exodus 7 and 8, I find it interesting that God doesn't sever between Israel and the Egyptians until the fourth plague. Why is that? If you go over to Exodus, let me just flip over there. It's getting harder and harder to turn through this Bible. It's falling apart. The fourth plague is a plague of flies. God says, I will sever, chapter 8, verse 22, in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, to the end thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, and I will put a division between my people and thy people. So it's not until the plague of flies that God divides. That means the Israelites suffered the results of the water being turned to blood. They suffered the results of the frogs, and they suffered the results of the lice. Why is that? It's interesting because the division doesn't happen until after Pharaoh's false prophets are unable to duplicate the miracles. Why did God allow the judgment to fall upon Israel during the first plagues? Because they were dissuaded that these things were from God because of those false miracles. They, kept, they stayed with their idols. The work of Jonas and Jambres, Pharaoh's uh, priest, drove even the Israelites to doubt God's Word and to continue worshiping idols. And as a result, they weren't severed from the judgment. But at some point, when Satan's priests weren't able to duplicate, then Israel woke up. And they were driven to worship God only. And as a result, God severed between them. And they didn't suffer the subsequent plagues. Satan's uh, miracles drive men away from God and toward idols. God's lead people to glorify God and put away idols. That's how we can know whether it's from God or not. It's the results. Finally, God's miracles feed men to repentance. Whereas Satan's miracles blind men to God's judgment. Peter. What did Peter do in Luke chapter 5 when they'd been fishing all night? And Jesus told him to cast out the net. And it came back full of fishes. So much so that their net, their net broke. And they had to have help dragging it to shore. What's the first thing Peter did when he saw this? 
Luke 5 verse 8, When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Brought him to repentance. A miracle brought a man to repentance because it was from God. Back at Acts 8 at 19, the miracles wrought by the hand of Paul in Ephesus not only uh, drove men to magnify the name of Jesus Christ, it brought them to repentance as well. Verse 18, many that believed, they believed God's miracle. As a result of God's miracle, men believed. But it didn't stop there. They repented, confessed, and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed. God's miracles lead, men's to, lead men to repentance. Just like God's prophets preach, and the proof that they're preaching God's Word is that men turn from their sins. We talked about that from the prophet Jeremiah last week. But Satan's miracles blind men to God's judgment. In the midst of all of these judgments that are falling upon the earth during the time of Jacob's trouble, both on Israel and the Gentiles, this false prophet will do a few miracles and it will blind the world to everything that was written plain in the book of Revelation. And they won't see it as God's judgment. It's all been written here. Just like the coming of Messiah was for Israel. Just like the coming of Antichrist is for them. It's all plainly spelled out. But men will be blind to it because they've seen a few miracles. And experience is their measuring stick for truth, not the Word of God. They've already dissembled in their heart. They don't care what God has to say. Yea, hath God said. The yea, hath God said society that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Jeremiah 44. The people drug Jeremiah down to the land of Egypt. They fleed even though he warned them not to do it. And they had sausage and nobody bothered them. And they got down to Egypt and everything felt great. It was a sign. It was a miracle. And what did they say they were going to do? We're going to go back to worship the Queen of Heaven. Because when we worshipped her, we didn't like food. We didn't like a home. We, we didn't have any problems. So their safe journey, which they thought was a miracle, was a, was a, was a deception. And as a result, they went right back to idols. Right back to idols, even though they had been warned by God. Amos chapter 4, God tried to get the people of Israel's attention with many things. But because you had priests and things in the land that were claiming experiences and miracles and all this garbage, the people of Israel were blind. Four times, or five times in Amos chapter 4, God reminds them of these judgments. Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Five times it says that. Yet you have not returned unto me. They were blind to God's judgment because they'd been led astray by false signs, experiences, and claims of miracles. So how do we discern whether a sign is from God or whether it's meant to distract and dissuade us and from the evil one? It's pretty simple. God's miracles lead people to believe Him, to believe His Word, they lead people to glorify Him and to lift up the name of Jesus. And they lead men to repentance. When those are not the fruits of so-called signs, then those signs aren't from God. Just like we know that when apples 
grow on a tree in my front yard, I know it's not the peach tree. If I forget which trees I planted where when I bought some trees a while back, and I don't know anything about what the leaves look, should look like or whatever, and I forget which was which, when the one in the front yard bears apples, then I know it's not the peach tree. I know it's not. When miracles don't bear belief in God's Word, glorifying God's name, lifting up Jesus Christ, fruits of repentance, then they're not from God. Satan's miracles drive men to doubt God. I believe God. He did this miracle. I saw the Virgin Mary statue and tears were coming down. But the Bible's just written by men. I've got to go to the Pope to get my answers. It's not from God. They drive men away from God and toward idols. Popes and pastors and the almighty dollar and, 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 and idols of gold and silver and stone. And they blind men to God's judgment. And in that sense, they are a judgment from God. The Antichrist is a judgment from God. The rod of his anger. This false prophet is a judgment from God. If you read what Paul warns about in 2 Thessalonians, he says that Antichrist's coming is after the working of Satan with all signs and power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they Receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. What's that strong delusion? It's the beast that comes out of the earth. Judgment from God. They'll believe a lie. That's why God allows it. Because people have already decided that God's Word is not true. And so it's judgment. Miracles can and do deceive. Look at the TV preachers out here claiming all these healings and stuff. Are they driving men to believe God's Word? No, they twist God's Word. Drive them to believe experience. Do they lead men to repentance? No. That's not a fruit of their ministry. It's not a fruit of Benny Hinn's ministry. You know, all of this prophecy down in Charlotte, this Agent Orange or Code Orange revival. God's going to send a great revival to this city. A great revival is here. And all these false teachers that come and spoke there, TV preachers and stuff that always claim these miracles. It didn't work out too well. What came was riots and the National Guard and craziness downtown. It wasn't a revival. Satan's miracles can and do deceive and they will do this to the greatest extent they ever have during this period of tribulation to deceive both Jew and Gentile. He'll do great wonders. He'll make fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, verse 14, and will deceive them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which He had power to do in the sight of the beast. Saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. Not only does He do miracles but he erects an image. This word for image means a likeness, a representation, a great idol of the Antichrist himself for men to worship. It's kind of funny because Jesus said in Luke 21 that Jerusalem would be trodden underfoot of the Gentiles until uh, the times of the Gentiles end. 
the times of the Gentiles began when an image was set up in the plain of Dura and men were commanded to worship it. That's when it began. The times of the Gentiles will end with the exact same thing. When Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians took over Jerusalem, led it away captive and destroyed the temple, for the Jewish people, the times of the Gentiles began. And Jerusalem has never been under the authority of the Jewish people since. The times of the Gentiles will end when the same things happen. An image is erected and men are commanded to worship it. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar erects this image that's 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Here we have an image erected of the Antichrist and men are commanded to worship it. It says here the they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. I've already said chapter 13 verse 3, a wounded head. Ezekiel makes reference to the dying of the death of the uncircumcised. Remember when the beast is spoken of, the beast is both an empire and the ruler of that empire. So this wounding has a national aspect and this is proven in Daniel chapter 2, the uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. The beast represents the imperial power of Rome that was wounded and destroyed, and it rises up again. Imperial power that the Caesars once possessed will be resurrected again on a national scale. So in a sense, the wounding of the beast, one of his heads, is fulfilled in the rising again of the Roman Empire and the imperial power once held by the Caesars that the beast will proclaim. Those seven heads represent seven empires in the history of this world that have tried to eradicate Israel as a nation. We see in Daniel chapter 2 that the, the, that the legs of iron, which is the fourth kingdom, eventually go into feet of iron and clay mixed together, and then it culminates in ten toes, the ten kings that form the last world empire. So it's connected from a national aspect. Iron is resurrected but mixed with clay. But there's also a personal aspect here. And here in verse 14 we have the proof. We say he was wounded by a sword and did live. Just as the empire is wounded and resurrected, Rome was wounded. In many ways the Roman Empire was assassinated. And it's lied dormant, but it rises again, revived and rise. And we see that happening even today amongst the modern nation states of Europe and the United States. Europe and the United States are the nation states that arose out of Rome. Rome has never ceased to exist. But there's a personal aspect, an assassination attempt, a counterfeit resurrection on the man himself. And this phrase here, who had a wound by a sword, proves it. It's not just talking about the resurrection of the Roman Empire, it's talking about the resurrection of the man as well. There will be a great miracle. There will be an assassination attempt. That's what Ezekiel is referring to. Dying the death of the uncircumcised. It will involve a sword. Somebody will try to kill him. And the world will think he's dead. And then there will be a miracle and he'll rise from the dead. And as a result of that, people will worship him. A pseudo-resurrection. Counterfeiting everything or trying to counterfeit everything Christ has done. 
Israelis will follow the Antichrist because of their chief rabbi and the signs that he does, the false prophet. This pseudo-resurrection, it's going to bring the Gentiles in line. And then all the world will worship the Antichrist. There'll be a lot of Gentiles that'll be reluctant to follow somebody as God that's Jewish. All the Israelis will come in line. The Jews will come in line because their chief rabbi, their high priest, this false prophet, the beast up out of the earth. Remember the earth, Israel, he comes out of Israel. Antichrist is a Jew that comes from the diaspora. There'll be Gentiles that are reluctant to follow a Jewish Messiah because they hate Jews. But when this false resurrection takes place and the false prophet continues to spew his propaganda, then the Gentiles will come in line. And they'll all unite together to worship the beast. We're told that uh, this image is erected by men. And the false prophet in verse 15 is able to give it breath. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. The image, the idol, is built by men. The false prophet is able to give life or breath. The word here is pneuma or spirit. It's not the word zoe, which means life. He gives it breath, but only God can give life to something that's not living. This has the appearance of life. It's a false miracle. Again, Satan's miracles can't attain the scope and results of God's or the permanency. But he is able to give breath to this image so that it appears to live. And it causes people to worship it. I'm reminded of a, of a, a C.S. Lewis book. He wrote a space trilogy that wasn't near as popular as the Chronicles of Narnia. It's difficult reading, but it's interesting reading. And he had a lot of insight into things we're seeing today. And in the last book, The Hideous Strength, he talks about an institution called the NICE Institute, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. And they take the head of a French scientist who, had, who was guillotined, and they do experiments on it, and they give life to this head. It appears that it's alive and that it can speak. And as a result, people follow this institute and do exactly what it says to do. It's kind of almost uh, prophetic in many ways. Uh, but again, it's a pseudo-life. And that's what we have here. Pseudo-miracles. Pseudo-Christ. Pseudo-prophet. This false prophet exploits the strange weakness of mankind to have something visible to worship. It's like man has to have something visible to worship. That's what the people want. They'll build it. The false prophet will cause it to speak and appear alive. A living, speaking automaton. Exactly what most are today. One of their own. Just an automaton that just goes about his business, does everything he's told, doesn't have the ability to think for himself. It's what they are, that's what they want, and that's what they'll worship. This idol, I believe, this image that is erected, is the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel and by Jesus Christ. Jesus told the Jews, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel standing in the holy place, then you need to flee. 
That word standing there in the original language is not standing in terms of a man standing, but it, has, it, it, it connotes being placed or abiding like a monument. Like we say the Washington Monument stands on the National Mall. That's what's being emphasized here. Something, a monument standing in the holy place. This wicked idol will be erected in the holy place. In the, in the temple that the Jews built, not because God commands them to build it, but because they're trying to usher in the kingdom of God and still rejecting their Messiah. But nevertheless, it will be built. Proof that we're in the last days. And this idol will stand there. The abomination of desolation. There's another time in Israel's history when an idol stood in the holy place. That wicked king Manasseh erected an idol and stuck it right there. Prefigures what would, will happen in the last days. Manasseh, when judged by God, humbled himself and repented. And when he came back to the land, one of the first things he did, did was rip that idol out of there. Proof that the signs in his life were from God because they drove him to repentance. This won't happen. This won't happen. We're reminded of Nebuchadnezzar's golden image here in Daniel 3, the burning fiery furnace. During the tribulation, there will doubtless be many who refuse the false prophets, but they won't escape like the three Hebrew children did. God may interpose to deliver some, but ultimately it will be for many of the tribulation saints who refuse to worship this image what the three Hebrew children were willing to do as far as the fiery furnace. And I'll close with this today. Turn to um, Daniel chapter 3. Now we know God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they didn't refuse because they were delivered. They made up their mind they're not going to bow to this image. Verses 17 and 18, they're threatened with uh, being thrown into this furnace. They don't make any excuses. They don't offer a defense. They just say, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of thine hand, O King. But if not, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. We're guilty of exactly what you're accusing us. God is able to deliver us if He wants to, but if not, we're not going to bow down to your image. And this will be the testimony of some that will not bow to this image, and they'll pay for it with their lives. God may interpose to deliver some, but the majority will be killed because they're in heaven and their souls cry out to God for vengeance. We've already seen that. So should it be for us with regard to the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of this false prophet that's already in this country today, these demons and human skin that walk amongst us in our halls of government, our attitude ought to be just like these three Hebrew children. God is able to deliver us from the wickednesses of this country. God is able to deliver us from the Sodomite Mafia. God is able to deliver us from liberalism. God is able to deliver us from uh, 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 the woes of the abortion holocaust in this country. God's able to deliver us 
from the fools that make up the U.S. Congress. God is able to deliver us from that demon witch who will be president. But if not, we will not bow to them. We will not bow to the thin blue line. Just because a police officer says to do something doesn't make it right. If God does not deliver me, I will not bow to the police officers of this country. I will not bow to the governor of this state. I will not bow to whoever claims the presidency of this country. And I will not bow to the American system. And I will not bow to churchianity. God can deliver us from all of these things. But if not, we must be like these children. We will not bow. We will not worship their idols. We will not call right what God says wrong. We will not accuse of being wrong what God says right. We will not change. Take it all. We will not bow. Praise God, we won't be here during the tribulation. But we can look to the examples of those that will come and we can take a stand today. I will not bow. I will not acknowledge homosexuality is right. Won't do it. Will not. Won't do it, period. I will not call men who aborts her baby a victim. Will not. Won't do it. That's where we need to be. We need to have the resolve that these Hebrew children had. And praise God that the witness will still go out in the tribulation and the Jews will wake up. Many Gentiles will come to Christ, but they'll have to have this resolve and they'll pay for it with their lives. Are we willing to do that to let it go? Beware the false prophet. Beware the spirit of the false prophet. Beware false miracles that drive away from God and cause us to trust our experience and not His Word. Beware these things. And take note that if we think it's bad now, we, don't, we, don't, we can't even comprehend what's coming. It's all around us, just like it was around the Jews when Jeremiah warned them about Babylon. They still were convinced that Babylon wasn't a threat. We're still convinced in this country that ISIS is not a threat. That liberalism is not a mental disorder, which it is. That, uh, that uh, bringing in all these immigrants from Muslim countries is no threat whatsoever. That the homosexual mafia is not a threat. Because we're blind to God's judgment. It's what we want. And what we want is exactly what we're going to get. But praise God, there's deliverance in Jesus Christ. When I come back week after next, I want to finish 13. So far we have gotten through um, verse 15. And when I come back, I want to talk about the mark. The mark of the beast, verses 16 through 18. There's a lot of things that have been said about this. We can't know for certain exactly what it is. But we know that without it, men can't buy and sell. sell. And we know that it's inextricably tied to the worship of the beast. Those that receive the mark aren't tricked into receiving it. When they receive it, they do it as an act of worship. But as we try to figure out exactly what it is, I believe that the answer's been there all along, right there in plain sight. But because we always prefer a riddle over what's plain, we've missed it. We missed it. But that'll be an interesting discussion and hopefully I can finish up chapter 13.